Network interface enabled. Hold, hold. Out of the Basement Podcast for the week of August 20th, 2012 on the Network Interface Podcast Network. I'm your co-host Carlos, and with me is your co-host BJ. We're back. I feel like we should play like Back in Black or something, you know, something appropriate. Uh, the uh, there's got to be another song. Um, it's it's uh, what's that one that they always say? It's it's been a while, you know that that's the one that I think that comes to my head when we think about that. Yeah. So where have we been? Um. Well. I've been in the land down under, um, where women swim in Menchunder, um, visiting family. My, uh, my wife, uh, is from Australia. And so once a year, we make the, uh, pilgrimage back to the motherland. Um, we go when it is summer here, cause it's winter in Australia, because if you don't, it is really bloody hot there and I melt. Um, I'm not really good with heat. What, what, and you live in Texas. I know, but in Texas, we live in kind of these hermetically sealed houses that, you know, I maintain at 72 degrees at all times. I see, I see. Over in Australia, they don't believe in central air. They have air conditioners for, like, the bedrooms, but not the whole house. Yeah, there's some places here in, uh, in, in the U.S. like that, although definitely not in Texas, because if you don't have air conditioning in Texas, you'll die. Yeah, it'll, <laughs> um, be, it'll be miserable. But uh, so what? Is, what is Chunder? I, I don't understand that. Oh, very good question. I didn't know that uh, at the beginning of myself. Um, Chunder is to uh, get so drunk that you vomit all over yourself and roll around on the floor. That I, I am enriched for today. Thank you very much, sir. That was my my new thing that I learned today. So I want to give a helpful tip for those um, who are into all things Australian. Um, the language might be a little bit. Uh, you know, I mean, they speak English, of course. But uh, some people, you know, the world language is speaking over in Australia, English, of course. But there's um, colloquialisms, right? Just like here in America, you know, they they have certain you know little idiosyncrasies to the language that might be tough to pick up at first. Here is your helpful hint of the day. Um, what they commonly do in Australia is take a word, cut it in half, and add a Y to the end, right? So breakfast becomes brekkie, right? Or diapers become diapies and stuff like that, right? So, you know, if, if any anything sounds weird, just think of the word, take away the Y, and, and, you know, fill in the rest, and you'll figure out what it is. Okay. I will try to remember that when I uh, get kidnapped and sent to Australia. It happens. They got drop I- ears. I know, I know. Yeah, so me, I've been writing furiously on uh, working on my PhD, trying to get through that. So that is where I have been in the last several weeks, kind of hold off doing that. Um, so today might be a little bit more disorganized than, than, than our usual disorganization, but we'll see how it works out. I think we always do well because mostly it's just a chat between us. We, we try to have some structure behind it, but mostly it's just you and I kind of catching up and gabbing about the, uh, the the events of the day. We've I've noticed that because we do this, our normal, like, real-life conversations kind of take a bit of um, a stasis. Like, when you were over this weekend to play Zombicide, you and I didn't really geek out as much as we normally do. No, because you had to save it for the podcast. Exactly, exactly. Whereas normally, Carlos and I, like, we, we get together and game, like, once a week. And, and this weekend, um, I, I got the, uh, the Zombicide board game from Kickstarter. Excellent board game. A lot of strategy involved, which I was kind of surprised at. Very what cool it, game. What it, yeah, you, did you enjoy it, Carlos? I, I liked it a lot, yeah. I was like I, I was I was expecting just a normal you know um, run and gun type of board game, but there was a surprising amount of in depth 
um, strategy involved with how we were moving and making noise, and, and the cooperative p- gameplay was extremely cooperative, a lot more so than I thought it was going to be. I thought we were all just going to be kind of working in silos of people running and gunning zombies, but we had to trade, you know, equipment, you know, someone had the shotgun, so we gave them the shotgun shells, they needed the rifle, I needed the, uh, the, uh, the Molotovs and stuff like that, and then I'll make yeah, when so- I, whenever I searched for something, all I kept on finding was bags of rice. What was up with that? You had there's like a bad luck um, fairy that we trade around the group. I think um, it's been with Shane for a very long time, but I think he's ready to shed the bad luck fairy well, and, and I'm pass gonna, it on. I'm gonna need a doc. We're gonna need to get it to hit Scott. We'll see what happens. We need to hit Matt because he's out of town. So that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, you know, the Zombicide was a lot of fun. I thought we might talk about that today. Uh, actually, let's see. Before we get to the news, other news, uh, on the agenda for today, what uh, what do we got? Well, I want to talk about the exploding free-to-play market. Um, if you've been a gamer who is maybe in hibernation a little bit due to economic hard times, right? You know, games cost a lot of money now. There are a ton of free games. There's no reason not to be playing something at this time. And so I wanted to start covering some of the bases there of the free-to-play market, how to get involved, what your best avenues are, and then some of the great games that are available out there, How you know, all that good stuff. So uh, for my, my topic today, uh, I had a couple of things uh, on, on the agenda possibly. Uh, one, of course, is uh, I was browsing the Netflix queue, and this was my joke topic, but I'll mention it anyway. Uh, two new movies I saw had a new theme there, uh, and that is there was Thanksgiving and Poultrygeist. Oh, wow. Those sound okay. horrible. <laughs> And I was gonna, I was gonna, you know, pretend to talk about that, but I couldn't even bring myself to watch them. So no, today what, uh, what I was gonna talk about was Asian horror movies, which I love. Can I, can I, can I break a moment and tell you about a horrible movie I saw? You can. Uh, so I love my wife. My wife is a beautiful woman. She's very smart, um, very sexy, but she has questionable taste in movies. And one that she subjected me to in Australia was Step Up Revolution. Um, Step Up Revolution is a terrible movie. Absolutely. I mean, it it has the same beats, like the same tempo of a porno in that dance, dance, dance scene, questionable, weak plot of just lip service to just have a reason to get to the next dance, dance, dance scene, right? So uh, had, had she seen the movie before? She'd seen, I think she's seen all the step up movies. Okay. I'm not entirely okay. sure. I mean, this is like the fourth or fifth one. So, I mean, I, I, I realize they're really trying to find their narrative ground hold on this one. I mean, they, they feel that they have more story to tell um, with number four or five or whichever one it is. So, um, all in all, horrible movie. I've seen Batman three times, though. Three times. So, so you don't recommend Separate Revolution, though. Okay, I'll no. write that down as something not to not to watch. Okay. Well, you know, you you went and did it. That's that's good. You, you, hopefully, you got points for that. Uh, yes. Well, you know, I which you're, which the, you're rapidly which you're rapidly losing by talking about it on the podcast. But you know, well, hey, I, I already lost them because I complained about it so much. So you know. <laughs> yeah, but this is public. Come on. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's change subjects quickly. News, uh, news going on out there. So um, let's start with RPG news because we like RPGs. I haven't heard anything in RPG news. All right. Well, Gen Con Gen Con wrapped up today. 
So uh, news has been trickling out. And for those of you who don't know, Gen Con is a huge gaming convention that happens every year, the main one being in Indianapolis. Uh, I've gone a couple times. It's it's a whole lot of fun. Uh, sometime I'd like to go again, just kind of have a lot too much to do at the moment to do that. But uh, yeah, lots of news has been coming out of that. Um, Paizo's announced a few things. They're coming out with a Mythic Adventures rule set next year, which is kind of their answer to Epic Rules, although apparently it's going to be something that you can apply across all levels. Not quite sure how it's going to work yet, but what they said about it, people sound excited. Uh, the Munchkin Pathfinder RPG was announced uh, out here from Steve Jackson Games here in Austin. So that will, if you haven't played Munchkin, it's a, a comedy-ish fantasy card game. Uh, not just fantasy, they've come out with pirates and zombies and cthulhu and ninjas and space but it's 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 a fun fun little game there and uh, the pathfinder comic from dynamite comes out next month as well now wizards had some really big news uh that they talked about here uh the biggest thing i think happened is that they are going to be releasing every D product from every edition electronically yeah they avoided they did that at one point and then they cut it because um, they were avoid, uh, uh, worried about piracy. Well, they didn't. They never did every edition. They they had done uh, some of sec. They kind of did something second edition. They had they had out online and then some things third, but never never everything. But this time they've made a commitment to release every everything they have in PDF format. I think it was PDF, but definitely electronically. About freaking time. <laughs> Do you think that they, it, this is again part of their strategy to compete with um, Paizo and Pathfinder? Well, I mean, it's partly, but it's also, I bet, part of their strategy to stop competing with themselves. Because what we've seen a lot of is a lot of OD&D uh, o- retro clones and come out and become really popular and, and all these other things. And it's, it's you know, there's no reason why they couldn't be doing the same thing aside from resources. And since they already have all this stuff, I mean, and it, it is the stuff that they own, There's this makes perfect sense to me. They, they should have been doing this the whole time. Because the, the reality uh, is... Let's let's re- rewind the clock twenty years, right? In order to do something like this, right, it was going to cost a lot of money from a printing standpoint. You know, publishing books is very difficult and costs money. Things like Lulu.com would have you have made it easier, but now in our magical digital era, you can be a publisher and, and a author and all that good stuff and get this stuff out there and never print a single piece of paper. Yeah, so I mean, this is this is good. I think I think this will be good for them and for the hobby in the long run. So very cool. And you know, since they're going to be printing adventures and everything, even the it'll be good for everyone. Even the old retro clones, you'll be able to play the old stuff with, and that'll be that'll be quite excellent. D and D Next has a release year now. Apparently, it is going to be coming out in 2014. They're looking at having two years of playtesting. Uh, they've been pretty consistently releasing out stuff. Uh, new playtest packets were recently released, and I think they were releasing two classes this weekend, which I haven't had a chance to look at yet. Um, so far, people, it's actually gotten better. Like uh, the feedback, or I should say the uh, the internet chatter has got has improved over time for this DDNX playtest from what I've seen. So I, I have the playtest package you're talking about, the newest one that's come out, um, and I've been kind of going through it. It is better than the last one, but only because things are less vague. I, I think it still has a lot of room that it needs to grow in order to get into a a real playable position. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm still not that satisfied with it. Yeah. I, uh, do you have the? So apparently they're releasing the warlock and the sorcerer, and that might be what just got released. I'm not sure if, if that's out yet. I don't have that in my classes build. I think I still got the classic fighter, thief, um, cleric, and ranger. I think I'm not sure. 
And then the ne- the other thing that they're doing is uh, they're, they're still pushing ahead with 4th edition stuff. They're going to be releasing some Forgotten Realms adventures next year where they will allow groups to report what happened in their adventure. And that's actually going to be what determines canon. Uh, you know, no RPG way. Yep. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, RPG8, you remember Living Greyhawk did that with the Living Greyhawk stuff a little yeah. bit. Uh, but yeah, apparently that's what they're going to be doing for the whole thing. So they're going to let people report it, and people's adventuring groups are going to determine FR canon. So that'll be neat. Um, they're going to – anyway, the full video of their, their big session is online. Uh, you can just, you can it's stream it's streamed. You can watch it at any point. You can find it at NWorld or Watsi. It's all over the place. So cool. Why don't you think they just support fourth edition and next at the same time? Why can't why, why is it why can't they have two editions going at the same time? Is it just too much infrastructure to try and support those two products? That's my guess. From what I've seen, you know, I've noticed that you don't see a lot of names associated with Wizards D and D anymore, specifically, right? You don't see. I don't. I don't know if they have the same staff that they used to. That that might be it. And I don't know. Maybe if this other uh, electronic. Uh, adventure is uh, successful, then maybe they will get more support for it. They, maybe they can. That would be excellent. And you know, they could be doing stuff like you've got uh, Cobalt Quarterly, right? That magazine, uh, yeah. Open Design, and they they put out adventures and articles for all kinds of editions. And there's no reason why, you know, especially with the Dragon Dungeon online system they're doing, there's no reason why they can't do the same thing with freelancers that that Cobalt Quarterly does. They could support all of it. That I think would be smart. I think if they, I think it could be smart if they, uh, if they got submissions and did open up every edition to freelancers. Because I, I think right now, I think their their target, their their aim is a little bit bold, and because it's so broad in scope, because they're saying with D and D next, they're gonna you need all you unite all the systems, right? That's that's the goal is to make one unified modular system that appeals to all fans of you know first, second, third, fourth, whatever, right? I think that's. I mean, I think the scope is too large for them, right? And and D and D next will probably be a fun game. We'll all play it, all that good stuff. But I, I think that they could gain that fan base back that they're looking for if they just said, you know what, we are going to um, keep fourth edition alive. We're going to re-release uh, three point five or, or tweak it. You know, do a, a new published version of it. Also, we're going to, you know, like you said start pumping out second edition stuff, even maybe first edition stuff, and then all of a sudden, like, all the fanboys can come back and then just pick and choose what they want to play. So... Yeah, I mean, I think that's... It seems smart. Uh, Again, I think it's a question of resources, but I don't think there's any reason that they they shouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, Other stuff, the Ennies came out, the 2012 Ennies. Very, very interesting. Really happy that my friends at Open Design uh, came out with two of them. Uh, best Adventure Gold was Streets of Zobic by Ben McFarlane, who's one of the guys I've been doing the D&D Next playtesting with. Really nice guy, really great product. It's an adventure book, uh, kind of an urban fantasy type thing. Great, great, great. It got Best Adventure. And they also won something for um, – let me see. What was the award exactly? Best RPG-related product for the Complete Kobold Guide to Game Design. Uh, which is a really great book. If you're interested in game design, totally worth picking up. Uh, lots of great uh, articles and authors by by many, many industry people. Very cool. Uh, congratulations to them. Um, but uh, other stuff, um, Best uh, the, the silver for Best Adventure was Madness at Gardmore Abbey, which was the big wizard's adventure, uh, which I have not played, but I've heard good things about it, and apparently it did, it did pretty well. Um, 
best free product was Paizo uh, Pathfinder's Weeby Goblins, which was a lot of fun. That was the free RPG adventure, uh, free RPG day, where uh, that was Paizo's free adventure where you play one of four goblins. It was a lot of fun. It's a really, really cute little thing. Best game, Silver was the Marvel Heroic Role-Playing Basic Game, which is actually one I don't own, shockingly, I'm sure Holly would say. Um, but yeah, that got silver, and then gold was Savage Worlds Deluxe, which I do own, and it's actually a really neat system that I have yet to play. I've been wanting to play the new Marvel system because you know we we enjoy those you know superhero RPGs. We've been playing a lot of the DCU one, um, but I heard about the Marvel one. I just I just haven't picked it up yet. Yeah, I think I will one of these days. I think it's a paperback, so uh, hopefully not not quite as pricey. Uh, they also won for best rule set, interestingly enough. Uh, best RPG-related product I said was Complete Cobalt. Uh, Silver was Lords of Waterdeep, which I agree. That is a really, really uh, fun game. That's pretty product. awesome. Yep. Product of the year, Silver was Marvel Heroic Role-Playing Basic Game, and Gold was the Pathfinder Beginner Box, which actually was really, really well done. Uh, Fan-favorite publishers were uh, Silver was Evil Hat Production, Gold was Paizo, and let's see, there were several judges spotlights uh, awards, including stuff by Mongoose Publishing, Seller Games, and, and a bunch of a, a bunch of these sm- uh, smaller kind of companies that are still doing really great stuff out there. I mean, I think right now it's a really good time to be a gamer uh, with the stuff that's out, the, the really good stuff that's out at the moment. So, oh, I have to completely agree. I mean, things are just getting better and better. We got more variety than ever. Um, I, you know, remember back in the day when it was just Dungeons and Dragons and then kind of GURPS came along and Rifts came along. Um, and so there's kind of three you could pick from, but then, you know, things just kind of exploded tabletop wise, you know, board games have gotten a lot more, um, uh, diverse and, and then your tabletop RPGs and, and, you know, yeah, it's, that's not to say, you know, also with the video games, you know, video games are just blown up in the, uh, the variety you can get both for console and PC. And I think for all of these, the uh, the Kickstarter phenomenon has been something else. I think we really have what they call, you know, the long tail. You have a bunch of people who can who can contribute to these things that might not be super popular, but you get enough people together and you can get you can get really great stuff out. So I, I think that's been really good for us. And it's been really good for the fans because a lot of these ideas that people want to make are are not going to be you know million dollar ideas, but they're going to be ideas that will um, be a good product for them, good product for the people who want it, and they can make a little bit of money on the side. The Kickstarter program is is great for that. You know that's how I got the Zombicide game is as I contributed to the Kickstarter campaign for that. Um, I also contributed for the Kickstarter campaign for uh, the Shadowrun game that's coming out. Right, Me these too. are these are all fan produced products by being done by people who love the games that they're making. Right. Yeah, Shadowrun is pseudo-fan because it was people who worked on the official Shadowrun. They're just not working on it right now. It's very confusing, but yeah. But yeah, it, it, they are great. And official – I mean White Wolf is doing their uh, Old World of Darkness and some uh, stuff out on Kickstarter too. So lots of people are taking advantage of that. Yes. Uh, let's see. Let's move to other news real quick since we can talk about RPGs forever. Anime and manga. I wanted to mention that someone had posted recently something I did not know was coming out. If you recall in my favorite or classic anime – uh, episode in our classic anime episode, I talked about one of my favorites, which was Rurouni Kenshin. Uh, it is coming out with a live action film, which I'm very excited about. The other interesting thing is that Netflix has tons of anime now. Just flipping through it, I was really surprised by that. Uh, uh, so I know anime had, I think, I mean, I think it has passed its height as far as sales and stuff like that, but the availability seems to be getting better again, which, which I, I'm kind of looking forward to through these streaming services. Um, Superhero news. What do you got for me? 
Uh, well, we have an Avengers 2 release date. That's exactly what I was going to cover. I was going to do superhero quasi, you know, uh, movie news. Yes, and, uh, well, if, uh, if you listen to this episode any time within the next three years, it won't be out yet. Exactly. It's uh, so uh, Avengers two is slated for May first, two thousand fifteen. This is what they are calling Phase two of the Marvel um, Cinematic Universe, and and I don't know if we covered this last time, but basically Marvel's handed over their their cinematic universe, their their media universe to Joss Whedon. That is awesome. Joss Whedon has signed up to be sort of the overseer, right? He's going to do the Avengers too, but he's also kind of signing up as the consultant and, and like this, this guide, or I, I don't know quite how you, you say it, but you know, he, he is, he's being the guru for their, their media. So he's going to help them produce, you know, the other movies. He's also going to help them make a TV series for their, their stuff. Right. And I mean, that's, that's nothing but good for us. Right. Yeah, good, good Joss Whedon. So we got Iron Man 3 coming out on May 3rd of 2013. Although it has been delayed slightly. Has it? So are they slipping the third date? Uh, we're not sure yet because uh, 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 Robert Downey Jr. apparently injured himself recently doing Ooh. a stunt. Yeah, so we're not, we're not entirely sure. I don't think it should be slipped too much, but it might be delayed a little bit. But yes, okay. that's probably around when it's going to come out. Uh, then we got uh, Thor The Dark World on November 8th, 2013. I'm not sure if I like that name, The Dark World, um, but we'll see. I mean, it, 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 they'll do something with it. And the bad guy is going to be played by Christopher Eccleston, who some of you may know from various other things, including the uh, first reboot Doctor Who. That's right. Um, he's probably famously known for playing bad guys more than anything else. Yep. Uh, and then- Captain America Winter Soldier on April 4, 2014. That's the uh, the other one. Uh, right, okay. And then the last one, this is the one that surprised me, Guardians of the Galaxy on August yeah. 1st, 2014. Which sounds nothing, from what I've seen so far, sounds very not related to the comics. So I Not at all. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it kind of made me like question like who made that decision, because Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, not the one that I would think they would go with. Right? Yeah, I thought that was a little odd too, because it's not a simple thing to translate to the big screen. No, there's gonna, yeah, you're exactly right. There's gonna be a lot of stuff in there that that people won't be able to interact with, right? So, yeah, um, and apparently in the television news, I hadn't heard about this at all, but there's gonna be a, there's a Green Arrow show coming out on the CW. Yes, Arrow. Yeah, I, 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 I know nothing about this except that Captain Jack is going to come out. That's pretty much the only thing I know from Torchwood. Have you seen the preview for Arrow on YouTube? They have like an nothing. extended like three. Okay, so they're they're going with this whole like he's been stranded on a desert island for a couple years now, and he had to fight for survival there. He's covered in scars and stuff like that. And so it's, it's the original Green Arrow history then. Yes, yes, they're going back to the roots for it. I, I mean, of course, it, it's definitely looking like Smallville style, right? So the the way they're doing their camera angles, the the overall tone and feel definitely looks like Smallville, but it looks like they're going a bit uh, grittier, a bit darker, which I I'm, I think is awesome. But I'm just like the Batman, Batman. You know, I kind of you know if we're gonna go gritty and dark and you know um, that kind of uh, real down on the dirt type of feel with it, you know. Batman. Why not Batman? Rights. It's got to be rights. It is. I know it's rights, but I mean... Uh, Any other movie news? Not necessarily superhero... Oh, there's probably a ton of movie news. I mean, we're the the thing is, is we're we're cooling down the the summer um, stuff, right? So 
we're not going to see as many big blockbusters come out now. We've we've kind of exhausted all that stuff. We um, have you seen the the big ones that have come out recently, the Born Legacy and Total Recall and all that stuff? I have. So, um, what did you think of Total Recall? I actually liked Total Recall. It was completely implausible. There was a lot of stuff, but I you know I had fun with even the dumb parts. Uh, you know. Can we get can we do we get spoilers? Slight spoiler. All right. So if you if you're gonna see the movie, if you're gonna see the movie, um, you don't want spoilers. Stop listening here. This is the official spoiler tag. Let's go yeah. ahead and get into it. Talk talk about it for a minute. There yeah. are some really dumb parts of this movie. Oh my uh, god. Uh, so so moving moving through, they have an elevator that goes through the center of the Earth between uh, the UK and Australia, uh, which and it goes right through the molten core. And there are just so many times where they can go. They, you know, they walk outside that that elevator right after they pass the core, and there's no problems. They're going at incredibly, you know, terrible speeds uh, with with incredibly high pressure and heat, and they're fine. They're just crawling around, crawling around the outside. <sighs> that that in okay, I come at it from an economic logistics standpoint, right? So the 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 plot line is the world has been devastated by war and there's only two places that are left inhabitable to live on England and Australia and so that's why they have this elevator through the center of the world it it takes you know and and basically um, Australia is called the colony, and that's for sort of all the grunt labor for England, where it's all nice and and you know people can live in comfort and stuff like that. And Australia kind of looks like it's you know full of slums and stuff. So what they do is they have this elevator, they load up everyone from Australia, chuck them over to England to go do all the grunt work, and then chuck them back when they're done. Um, and so I'm like, wow, you know, the the Earth must be really freaking toasted. You know, it must be completely like you know uninhabitable. You'll you'll vaporize if you get out. No, you know, just these little gas masks, you know. They don't need to, like, cover up in, like, radiation suits or anything like that. Just little, like, little, like, Bane gas masks that they got on, you know, they're, they're tr- trucking around. And I started thinking about it. I was like, you know, even today, we have really good um, oxygen scrubbing technology, right? Um, sort of like our, our, our water distilleries, you know, vapor distilleries and, and desalinators. We have really good technology to clean air, right, and, and get all that stuff going. So they... These people thought logistically, okay, uh, we're you know we're, everything's devastated. We now need to figure out uh, we're going to make a giant elevator through the center of the earth with a thing the size of a freaking like you know building you know that that goes through it rather than just I don't know clean up the air. Oh yes, apparently that technology didn't advance, but we do have hover cars. And we do have uh, we do have robots, and we do have all kinds of other technologies. Floating elevators, for the space, yeah. floating you know. elevators, yeah. But yeah, so they couldn't figure out how to clean, them, you know. But yeah, but actually, I enjoyed it. I mean, as far as like a brainless action movie, I thought it was fairly decent. I will uh, give it credit. Visually, stunning. yes, yeah, visually really good. I liked some of the fight sequences. You know, it was kind of neat. Did you see the Born Legacy? I did see the Born Legacy. What did you think? Dry, very yeah. dry. <laughs> I, I completely and totally agree. I actually saw that today, and I kept on – you know, this is one of those movies where I kept on wanting to get out my watch and check what time it was. Longest chase scene ever. Well, I mean, okay, so the problem is the the Bourne movies are already kind of dry, but normally that's okay because there's like this mystery behind it or, you know, the, like I – I, I I was really upset with this one because it just wasn't that good. So I, I I went back and rewatched the original Born Identity to figure out you know okay why was this so good because it it felt like it had the same pacing, 
you know, hit the same notes here and there, right? Had the same visual styles, but it just wasn't as good. In the Born Identity, you know, he wakes up in the middle of the ocean, doesn't know who he is, you know, oh, what's going on? You know, he's very emotional about it and stuff like that. And so his motivation is to figure out who he is. And the entire time as he's going on this quest, people are trying to kill him. So he's come to the realization who I am is either someone very good or very bad and people want to kill me for blah, blah, blah. So there's investment there. You're invested in his journey to figure out who he is. And then the other movies are about redemption, about him feeling yes. bad for who he was and trying to make up for that. And then, again, we're going to do spoiler tags here. So if, you don't, if you're going to see the movie, you don't want to ruin it, don't listen anymore. But Jeremy Renner's character, Alex Cross or whatever, was not a sympathetic character. He came across as just a junkie. It was it was weird. Yeah, it, you know, it didn't. I agree. I think the other Bourne movies were were better than this one. And you're right. The the last two were more about redemption. The last one in particular, and then this one took the last one and pretty much, uh, you know, Jim came out of it saying, "Wow, the bad guys are winning again." Yeah. And plus, you know, how many secret agencies can there be exactly? Are we up to like nine now? Because you got Treadstone, Treadstone and Blackbriar yeah. and Lark and, you know, just like so many things coming out over and over and over. And it's like, ah, yeah. And, so, you know, it, they could have – I think there were some interesting things that they could have explored. I mean they touched on the issues of uh, – you know the responsibility of scientists in the research that they're doing because you know. Oh, the, the, they they touched on that very lightly, like n- hardly. That's at what all. I'm saying. Very lightly, they touched on uh, the U.S. the U.S. and uh, people doing uh, bad things for patriotic reasons. I mean, they could have explored all that so mo- you know, more than they did, or better than they did, I think. And they really didn't do a great job of any of that. I mean, like, were you also shocked that? Cross, you know, whatever Jeremy Renner's character's name was, Cross, uh, he didn't seem that upset that they tried to kill him? No, not really. And, he, yeah. you know, yeah, that didn't seem to bother him at all. He just seemed to, you know, I, I need my blue drugs, I need my blue pills, I need my blue pills, right? He wanted to stay smart. And then they, they set up that thing about him, like, being 12 points shy of the minimum intelligence needed to join the army, so apparently he must have been pretty damn dumb. Yeah, they could have done a Flowers for Algernon thing, come on. Exactly something. I mean, and they didn't. They set that up, and I was like, "Ooh, interesting character development." I mean, exactly. We're like, we're like an hour in, but I'm I'm digging it. And then they drop it completely. Yes, exactly. As, as I was thinking, it's like, "Oh, it's a flower for Algernon type thing." No, didn't didn't really use it at all. Um, Rachel Wise's character, uh, she was pretty much until the end, the damsel in distress. Very very stereotypical needs to be rescued multiple times kind of thing it's like uh, i don't know i i was i was disappointed i mean it, it it had a couple of good scenes i thought the chase scene went on way too long and every time i thought it was over it kept going i think that was more frustrating than anything else but uh and there it, i don't know it kind of into you can tell that they're setting up for more or they're trying to set up for more but we'll see what happens i mean i think it's doing okay yeah, it's doing oh. fine. It'll probably get a sequel, and and yeah. Jeremy because because uh, Damon's just I think a little bit too old to to play you know um, born anymore, um, and so they need to kind of pass the torch on. You know, you, you were talking about Rachel Weisz, you know, playing. You know, the, like I said, it hit the same beats as the original um, Born. So they're they're on the run and they have to hide her. Mm-hmm. In the original Born, they dye her hair and cut her hair. I mean, they they you know go to a, a, an extreme to hide her. She just like I'm going to pull a Clark Kent and just puts glasses on. 
Right, right. And, and like, actually, yeah, yeah. That that criticism is also applies to the original one, especially the book. The book was even worse than than the movies, but still, yeah, you're right, Clark Kent. I thought that was kind of funny too, especially since they have like facial recognition technology and and surveillance and you know whatever. But yeah. Um, other have you seen anything? Other movie news? Oh, I have another movie news bit for you. Remember how a few podcasts ago I started out? I am Bill S. Preston Esquire, and with me is Ted yeah. Theodore Logan. Yeah. Well, guess, guess what's getting a new movie? Oh, I've known about this for a while, the new Bill and Ted. I had not heard this, uh, that yes, there's going to be a Bill and Ted 3. I mean, it's greenlit and everything I've heard now. So uh, with Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter. Well, this is something that they've both been wanting to do for a while together. Yeah, apparently. yeah but, but it's actually happening, yeah. I'm all for it, man. Yeah, me too. I mean, we'll see what happens. The director is going to be Dean Parasad. Who did Galaxy Quest? And that's a perfect choice. I think so. So we will see how well it or how well it comes out, I guess. But the question but, is, what are they going to do about the lack of George Carlin? I, that's exactly what I said to Holly. It's like, but they don't have George Carlin, so yeah. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens there. I just don't want them to recast Rufus because that would make me sad. Yeah. Any other news you got for movie stuff? Um. Nothing off the top of my head. I mean, uh, it, we're getting into the the Oscar season, so we're going to start seeing a lot more um, artsy fartsy movie comes out. Those are more my flavor. I like the artsy fartsy stuff. Um, besides, like you know, the Avengers and, and Dark Knight uh, Rises. That's pretty artsy. I actually want to see Moonrise Kingdom. I haven't had a chance to see that yet, but that is one of my list of things to see. Man, I have a hard time with his artistic style on his films because it's all very oddly balanced um, images on the screen, right? It's these, like, weird, like, you know, mirror... Like, if you take, a, like, one of his, his um, shots, the cinematography shots that he has, and you put a line down the middle, it's, like, mirror images on each side, right? So he has this weird thing about playing with the um, the image on the screen and making it very balanced, and it kind of tweaks me out a little bit. I don't I don't know if I like it. Yeah, it's on my list of things to see. It's it's only in the indie theaters, so uh, it'll probably only be here for a bit longer. So hopefully we'll get a chance to, though. we got Expendables uh, 2 coming. Uh, Jim saw it already. He said it was amusing, uh, but I have not and probably won't see it. I haven't seen the first Expendables. So. Did you see that new one with Arnold, The Last Stand? That's, I have uh, not. The trailer? I have not. Boy, he looks old. <laughs> that's, that's what I hear. Uh, let's see. Any video game stuff before we actually get to the thing? I've been playing Secret World. That's pretty much because of all the writing. It's the only game I've had time to play recently. I love the Secret World. I've had a lot of fun with it. I've been playing with Holly. Yeah, she likes it too. It's It's been great. Yeah, you you've uh, you told us about that. You know, the people in your guild. This one person who has all the skills in the game. Yes, he. I yeah, he's pretty much plays constantly. <laughs> yeah, for, but yeah, it it is it is a really fun game, and I like that you can change roles. Uh, pretty much just as long as you have the skills to do it, you can be any role you want, and you don't have to. It's not there's no respect type thing because you can just change the, everything on the fly. A lot of fun. Kind of like I mean, honestly, uh, kind of like Guild Wars too. Uh, <laughs> some of those things that they can do there. Yeah, I mean, quality of life stuff like that just makes the game so so much more approachable and so much easier to play. You know, if, if it's ha- a hassle to do things and there are certain things you have to do over and over again and they're, they're a hassle, that's how you lose your player base. Yes, and then I saw, and I, I know this was this is kind of old news, but I hadn't had a chance to really look at it yet, coming out with Baldur's Gate Enhanced Editions for both Baldur's Gate 1 and Baldur's Gate 2, uh, redoing all the graphics and adding new characters and quests and plots and stuff to them, too. 
Yes, thank God. I've been wanting them to, to, to revisit the Baldur's Gate and not like make a brand new one, but just remake the originals because they were so good. You know, give it a better UI, some better controls, all the good stuff, spoof yeah. up the graphics. And that's exactly what they're doing. And it's relatively inexpensive, too. I think it's uh, 20, 30 bucks. And yeah, it, I'm really looking forward to that. I think the first one might come out next month. So. Of course, the Big Daddy coming out is uh, Guild Wars, and I know we're all going to be playing that. In the meantime, a bunch of us have been playing Star Trek Online. Um, I know that's a little bit of a blast from the past, but that kind of goes back to what I'm going to talk about later about um, free-to-play games. Um, yeah, I haven't been playing it, but I did play it uh, a, a lot a few months ago. So, uh, oh, it's, oh, wait. it's fun. Speaking speaking of games, I mean, our whole last podcast was almost entirely about DayZ. Where, where, where are you all on DayZ now? I think a lot of people quit playing DayZ because there were some... I still play it. Um, I get on, and I, I've been killed a bunch of times recently because I was getting kind of ballsy and going into Electro and Cherno a bunch trying to gear up. But I still play it. A buddy of mine, Eddie, from work, um, or I used to work with him. Him and I have been playing it a little bit together. Uh, when, when Just about when we were quitting, um, they were having a lot of problem with hackers, people coming in and breaking everyone's leg on the server or teleporting everyone to the beach and everyone kills each other and stuff. So... Uh, they've kind of, they've really, they've sent out a bunch of bans. They banned a whole bunch of people, put in more safeguards into the uh, the core product and stuff like that. So you don't see that as much anymore. Um, I think people just got kind of, uh, my, my some of the guys I play with got a little tired of the the permadeath, right? You know, permadeath can be hard to take, especially if you have like a bunch of good gear, you know, sniper rifle, ghillie right. suit, you know, Alice pack, all these really good stuff, and then you die, you lose everything. Starting from scratch can be kind of a big hurdle. Yeah, and I assume, and and when it's not your fault, when it's like cheating, that permadeath must be really frustrating. Yes, I've had that happen to me before, where you know, if I get killed by you know a sniper or something like that, or zombies, okay, well, I was being too ballsy, or or you know, I was you know doing something incorrect. But if you get killed by a cheater just coming and teleporting you to the beach and killing everyone, well, that's not a good death, right? That's someone just being dumb. Mm-hmm. So it's hard that that's a little bit harder to get over. Exactly. Um, oh, speaking of, well, we talked about Zombicide a little bit. That was a, a Kickstarter project. You got any Kickstarter projects you're looking at now? Uh, nothing off the top of my head. I've, I've been trying to, to kind of keep the the Kickstarter donations reined in a little bit. Only stuff that I really really want. Exactly. Because it's too easy. It's 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 almost addictive to like want to donate this stuff. And I found myself like really want to. And I was like, you know what? Only really donate to stuff that you really want. So that's why the only things I've donated to so uh, donated to so far have been Zombicide and um, Shadowrun. But there's a ton of other good stuff on there. Yeah, I'll mention two things that I have right now. I, I have a lot of stuff reminding me, but two things I'm actually donating to. One of them is Gail Simone uh, is doing a new comic graphic novel called Leaving Megalopolis uh, about uh, a world where all the superheroes suddenly uh, – turn into homicidal lunatics and what happens there uh so that one that one's been doing pretty well it met its goal it's currently its goal was pretty ambitious i think it was thirty-four thousand. it's at seventy thousand about now uh looks like it'll be interesting you might remember gail simone talked a little bit about her in the sexism in comics uh she did secret six she was doing batgirl uh, now so that that's kind of neat uh the other one i wanted to talk about is kind of interesting so um Pretty recently, Monty Cook did an Indiegogo project to write an adventure, uh, an adventure for a system called Lamentations of the Flame Princess, which is a retro clone basically. Um, it didn't do that great. It, it had a, a 
I didn't think a, a, an excessive goal of about six thousand dollars, and it didn't it didn't even make half that. So people were like, well, on the forums, people, well, there's a lot of, of course, Monty Cook is a very divisive figure on the forums, um, of various websites. People were wondering, well, you know, has has Monty Cook lost it? Where's one thing? But and I'm a big Monty Cook fan, so that, that that's had me a little bit. But he started his own Kickstarter project for an entirely new game recently called Numenera. Uh, and this one was more ambitious. It started, it started at uh, $20,000 for funding. And so people were like, well, let's see, let's see what happens with this. Uh, the premise is it's set a billion years in the future. It looks a little bit, a uh, little bit sci-fi, a little bit fantasy. It's a lighter rule set than, than, than D&D is generally, but it, it looks pretty good and the art is just gorgeous. Yeah. And you can look at, uh, the system on, uh, Numenera.com. So the $20,000 goal, it made it in 12 hours. And, wow. Yeah. And it tripled it in 24 hours. So yeah, it's currently sitting at about $130,000 and still rising. And it looks pretty good. Um, they've got, uh, they're starting out with character, gener- even though character creation is simplified, they're starting out with character creator apps for iOS and Android. They're, uh, they're doing some really good stuff. Uh, and the stretch goals are kind of fun too. There's adventures for each stretch goal, just about, or at least three of them. Uh, they're giving books to libraries, uh, for some of the stretch goals, which they, they did meet that. Uh, and yeah, so it's, it's a, it's an interesting one to check out. Uh, it's, it's a Numenera. It's on my backer history and you can search for it and you can find out all about the system on, uh, Numenera.com. So that was pretty cool. Um, so the way that I have Kickstarter set up is I tell it to remind me the last two days before, uh, before it's, it, uh, before the thing is funded. That way I don't like impulse buy because I agree it's, it could be addicting to go to Kickstarter. So I, I have a lot of stuff on my watch list, but, uh, those are two that I, that I've actually contributed to. So yeah. Look at this. I mean, they got like the Eternity dice, dice made from lava. Yeah. I saw that. And that's like, it's been backed, you know, they, they're back like over a thousand percent or something. They've got fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, Kickstarter is awesome. Um, okay, are we ready to talk about the other subjects? Let's uh, let's hit it old school, dude. All right, go ahead. Let's go FPS. So, well, it's not really FPS, but like, let's just oh, talk about. I meant free to play. F2P. Free to play. F two P. That's what F2P. I meant. So, uh, the free to play model is is a fairly new advent. Um, Really, it became popular because of MMOs that were maybe floundering under the old subscription model and found a home under the free-to-play model. Now, when we say free-to-play, that's literally what it is. You get to play the game for free under a certain kind of, not restriction per se, but... Um, you, you maybe lack some of the quality of life stuff, right? And they try, most games try to keep it restricted to, um, graphical things like, you know, skins, you know, maybe if you do free to play only, you'll only get, you know, armor that looks, you know, kind of plain Jane. If you really want the nice looking armor, you gotta buy it and stuff like that, pay real money. Um, but the, uh, the free to play market has really exploded. I want to say in the past year, and it's just getting more and more out there. Now, your best avenue into free-to-play, I would say right now, is Steam. Steam is your best way to start just getting into the free-to-play market. They have a whole genre on their their whole console that's just free games, free first-person shooters, free RPGs, you know, free whatever. And within their um, table of contents uh, that they have, 
They have 40 games, 40 games to play that are free. And these are not, you know, like little tiny, you know, um, independent games, right? You know, we got stuff like Tribes Ascend. Tribes Ascend is a free-to-play game. That's one of the first-person shooters, right? Um, we've been playing that a lot recently. It's a very good tactical game. Um, it's a, you know, it can be capture the flag type stuff, you know, hold, you know, certain uh, waypoints, what have you. Um, you know, futuristic. So Tribes Ascend, very good free-to-play first-person shooter. Dungeons and Dragons Online, that is free to play. You can play it. Um, they have certain uh, modules. They they call some of their dungeons modules, what have you, uh, are cost money. But the core game itself, getting up to max level and getting good gear, all free to play. Um, uh, Vindictus, free to play. Um, another good uh, free to play massive multi- uh, multiplayer RPG. Uh, Atlantica Online, Maple Story, Bullet Run uh, is another free-to-play um, first-person shooter. Uh, they got others on here. Let's take a quick look. Lords of the Lord of the Rings Online. I, you played that, right? Yes, I, that was a great game. That was a great game. That is free to play on Steam. They got Age of Empires Online, so that's a uh, real-time strategy. That's uh, free to play. Uh, Stronghold Kingdoms, another strategy game. Uh, Fallen Earth, uh, it's a uh, science, uh, futuristic, uh, apocalyptic um, RPG. Uh, Star Trek Online, the one that we've been playing, uh, that's uh, free-to-play. EverQuest 2, uh, DC Universe Online. So uh, all of this is available through Steam. Steam is your, your avenue into them. Um, basically, you can sign up through Steam, get the account. It'll help you create your account inside the game. Right. Um, so your Steam account is not necessarily going to be an account that you log into for these games. Right. You'll probably need another account to log into them. Right. Um, but the Steam uh, engine can serve as your wallet into the game if you want to buy some of the extra quality of life stuff. Like some of them have XP boosts, you know, gain extra experience points if you buy like a little two dollar thing or one dollar thing, um, get different skins like. Here's a great example. Uh, on Star Trek Online, I just made Captain Rank, right? So I am a captain in the Federation. And my uh, ship is the Galaxy Cruiser, the same model as the Enterprise in the next generation. So I got all that stuff, and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And then instantly, I wanted to buy the old-style next generation um, outfits from the, the series, right? That is five dollars uh, to have those outfits. You have plenty of other outfits. You can customize them, change the colors, can, you know, change the, the stuff. You get a ton of free out, you know, outfits that you can customize. But uh, these are all kind of newer, futuristic because I think it's set like a hundred years in the future from the next generation. But not quite that far. But yeah, not quite that far. Just yeah. yeah. Uh, I knew it was a little bit in the future, but I wasn't mm-hmm. quite sure how much. But so. Uh, all of the the default stuff it's nice it looks good but if you want that nostalgia look right be it the classic Star Trek or Next Generation or Deep Space Nine or the Enterprise series all that stuff costs money so I, and there's nothing wrong with that because some people might complain about it but I get to play the game for free I mean I want that stuff but the yeah. want hasn't been enough for me to actually buy it so I've just been enjoying exactly. the content for free. Yeah, exactly. And I did I did just about the same thing. Um I played a lot of it for free. I uh I uh I spent money when I got to level when I got to level 50. I've got uh, the Odyssey cruiser and that's pretty much the yeah, that's pretty much it. Most of the stuff you can get, you can purchase. Yeah, a lot of it is uh yeah, you can buy skins, you can buy outfits, you can buy clothes. 
uh, yeah, so it, it, I, I agree. Star, and Star Trek Online is a great example. I had a lot of fun with that. Um, it, and it's very interesting the way that Free is driving competition between a lot of these games now as well. Well, here's the really shocking thing that I found out is that a lot of these games that were struggling under because let's 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 really address what the problem is. The problem is the subscription model. The subscription model has been there since Ultima Online. Ultima Online was the first one to say, "Here's a game. It's an online game, massive multiplayer game. To play it, you'll need to pay eight bucks, you know, a month." Right? EverQuest came out, did the same thing, um, and then we had the uh, uh, God. What was that um, one? We, we had a couple others um, come out. I can't remember the names of them. But then the the big daddy, World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft currently costs, like, what is it, 12 or 13 bucks a month? Yep. Depending, um, on, how, depending on how many months you buy it once, but yeah. Exactly. And so the, 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 the tr- line of thought, the train of thought was, in order to do a massive multiplayer game, and one of these online games, you need to do a subscription model. And then somebody, I forget who the first one was, they chucked it and said, you know what, we're just not making that much money. We're not able to keep our stuff up. We're going to try something different. We're going to offer these quality of life items, these aesthetic items, you know, things that aren't core to the game but are nice-to-haves, not need-to-haves for, you know, you, you pay for them with real money. But you get the rest of the game for free. And all of a sudden, they started making like three times the amount of money that they were making under the subscription model, Right. So games like Lord of the Rings, if it was still under subscription, it would have gone away, right? Lord of the Rings Online is making about two to three times more money than it was making under the uh, subscription model. Right. The first one I think that really popularized that was uh, Dungeons & Dragons Online because I know that was like such a big deal when they did it. Everyone was kind of shocked that they moved from the subscription model to the the free-to-play, and it was really successful for them. But if you remember, it was doom and gloom when they announced yeah. it. Yeah, oh, like, totally. Oh, it's going to fail. Like, that, yeah, that's that's. There's like this the sign that this is going to fail. There's no way. It was, yeah, it was completely uh, pessimistic about what was going to go happen with them. But people were wrong. And I think there's a on neg- the internet. On the internet, yeah. <laughs> I know. And I think there's a. I think there's an undue negative attitude to free to play when they hear a game is going free to play. They hear they they a lot of people say, oh well this. This game's going down the tubes, right? It's it's you. People have to adjust the way they think because strategically, people you know these games don't make as much money you know from this front-facing pay system. They need some kind of back-facing, you know, something that's on the back end. You know, if I'm paying. 15 bucks a week, I'm starting to question what kind of content I'm getting. You know, Am I getting the updates I want? Am I getting the, the, the quality of the, for the game that I want? If I'm paying nothing, then I got nothing to complain about. And what I buy from their online stores, I know what I'm getting when I pay for that money. If I bought those Federation outfits, I know what I'm getting for that. right? So I got no place to complain about it. Exactly. And so... I think the the free to play model, these little stores, and like Star Trek's another great example of doing free to play, but also giving avenues to even get that stuff, even if you don't do free to play. So they have a system in there where you can yes. mine and refine dilithium, and then trade dilithium for the currency. I forget what it's called, Zenny or something, but trade it for the currency used to buy all the store stuff. So. Even you could like not spend a dime and still get like the stuff that's in the store. Yes, it, it takes much, 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 much longer, but it is possible. And actually, when Jim was playing, that is how he got that stuff, um, some of it. But yeah, some people would much rather do it that way. Yep, and you know, Jim would not does not like to spend money. So no, he does not like to spend money. 
So some other great examples of free-to-play, the stuff that – you play DC Universe Online, right? Uh, yes, and I enjoyed it. Another uh, – that game, you know, it was one of those games that was just missing a little something. I mean, it, it is a fun game. It's a very – I played it with my Xbox controller, and I think it's very you know, very good to play it with, that, with a controller like that because it, it makes the game a lot snappier because it's a bit more of an action-y sort of game. Um Graphically, it's it's you know a beautiful game compared to most MMOs. Most MMOs, I think, kind of lack a little bit in the graphics because they feel, since they're doing this you know larger world, you know the the graphics need to be dumbed down a little bit. That's like one of my complaints about um, the Old Republic. I felt graphically it was a little bit behind, um, compared to the amount of like resources and stuff that it took up on my computer. But DC Universe Online looks absolutely stunning and beautiful. Yeah, and and it, and it was fun. I mean, it was it 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 played. I, I can see how a controller would be helpful because it played like it was made for a controller, which it probably was since it's also out on the console. But uh, yeah, I, I I had fun with it. It was neat, and it's really nice to have all these different options of games to go to whenever you want to, um, you know, that without having to pay a subscription. So here's what I do: is I keep most of them just installed on my computer. So I have. You know, a, a bunch of these games I've mentioned, Tribes, uh, Dungeons & Dragons Online, Lord of the Rings Online, DC Universe Online, Star Trek Online, I have all them installed. I have a nice, big, fat secondary hard drive where I keep all my video games. My OS is on my primary hard drive, and I've got this huge hard drive as my secondary, and I keep all the games installed on there. And, you know, if I want to play Champions or something, I just go play Champions, right? You know, I don't have to worry about installing it. Um, it's always there. I, I always have access. I don't need to, like, reactivate my account or something. If I just want to – sometimes I just want to make a character and see what their character creation system's like and if they've added new powers or something right. like that. So I just keep them all installed. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I got a newish computer recently, so I don't have all the old ones installed, but that's exactly what I do, too. Uh, I, I have them all installed so that I can play them when I want to. I just wish I had time. That's the problem. Time. Well, uh, you and wanting to be educated, and, and do I have to start calling you Dr. Uh, yeah, that, that'll be a while back. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite there. I'm trying to do my quals, so we'll see how, how this turns out. Um, Upcoming free-to-play games, I've heard good things about Planetside 2. Planetside 2 is going to be pretty awesome. Um, it looks uh, it looks amazing. It absolutely looks stunning. Uh, and, and it's meant to compete directly with, with uh, Tribes, and that's the other thing. Now that these now traditionally the free to play was within the MMOs, and then other games started getting into it, like Stronghold Kingdoms, Age of Empires. They've been doing well free to play. They've been making money, and so now the FPSs are saying, "Hey, uh, we see something here. We see something in it, right?" So now we're starting to get stuff like uh, Global Agenda, uh, Planet Side Tribes. I think even uh, Modern Combat announced that they're going to be doing a free to play game. Uh, for the uh, the whole uh, the whole system, so I think you're going to start seeing this this uh, snowball effect where more games, more and more games, are going to start doing free to play because the model seems to be working well for games that might be underperforming otherwise under the old system. Right, and um, well, we've we've talked to a free to play game. The MOBA games are free to play, and we've we've been playing those for a while too. Oh, we completely missed that one. That's another huge strategy, right? League of Legends. Um, God, what are some of the others? Uh, uh, Monday Night Combat. Um, Dota, Dota coming out. Um, yeah. Yeah, Dota 2. And, and here's the thing. Here's the really weird thing. 
so those have always had a bit of a hard line uh purchasing system there'll be like a rotating hero system you know so you can try them out you know on a weekly basis you have to buy heroes to be able to play them all the time so you know what valve's doing uh no valve with dota 2 they're making all of their champions free every single champion is free huh so what are you buying from them I'm guessing um, cosmetic things like skins and what have you. So this is forcing the other games to go all free for their their heroes. I know one of the others, um, was it Heroes of New Earth? I think it was Heroes of New Earth, but I could be wrong. They announced that because of that, they're doing all of their heroes for free. Oh, cool. I didn't know that yet. It's going to be a spiral effect. I think you're going to start hearing the other ones, like the original, and you're going to start hearing that, you know, maybe even the, the Big Daddy League of Legends will say that, you know, they're going to give out their heroes for free. That would be cool. Would- and of course, we have uh, Guild Wars 2 coming out, which is, you know, you purchase the game, but then it's free after that, you no know, subscription model. Guild Wars has always been like that, though, even yes. before it became popular. Yes, Guild Wars is one of the first games to not have a subscription that was uh, sort of an MMO, but yeah. So, but Guild Wars 2 even even more so. So that's going to be pretty interesting, also. And then what was the other one I was thinking of? Um, oh, I just lost my brain. <laughs> that's okay. So the 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 goal of this conversation is we're all gamers. We love video games. Maybe you prefer real-time strategies to first-person shooters, or you like your RPGs or what have you. No matter what you like, and if it's sci-fi, if it's fantasy or whatever, there is a free-to-play game out there for you. There's absolutely no reason not to be playing a free-to-play game. Um, you know, money's let's let's face it, Carlos. Money's tight. Economics, you know, it's it's we're we're in a tough economic time. Um, so really, the only thing that's holding you back is having you, you don't even need a supercomputer, just a decent computer, and we'll play a ton of these games, right? Yes. And and an internet connection. That's all you need. Yep. And all the rest of your money can go to Kickstarter. <laughs> don't do that. That can be. Ooh. <laughs> it's an addiction, man. Uh, yeah, definitely. So. I recommend my, my recommendation to people who are listening want to get in, download Steam and just start browsing through their uh, free to play selection. They got a ton of free to play games on there, a whole a whole category of it. Um, find something that's good for you. I recommend some of the games that we've mentioned here: Dungeons and Dragons Online, uh, Lord of the Rings Online, DC Universe Online, Star Trek Online, um, Tribes if you like that, uh, Stronghold we had a lot of fun with, um, all that good stuff. Just try it, and there's going to be something for you. Yep, and let us know if you're playing. Yeah, absolutely. Let us know. Tweet us or email us. Let us know what you like, you know, what you didn't like. And uh, we'll, we'll probably revisit this topic uh, on, a, you know, definitely more in the future. As, like I said, it's a snowball effect. We're just going to see more and more games becoming free to play. Plus, I know some people that jump from a game like week to week to week. So if you let us know we're playing, you'll probably run into us someday. I think you're talking about us. Well, you know, maybe. It's got. <laughs> it's got. It's got. He's got gaming ADD. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people do, I think, though. And free-to-play just makes it so much easier. It really does. Are we ready to broach the next subject? Let's do it. I'm interested. I'm, I'm ready for it. Okay, well, then let me uh, let me put you on pause for a bit. Can we take a quick break? I hear something going on in the other room with some animals. So. Yeah, let's go ahead and take a pause, and uh, we'll come back in just a moment. All right. Okay, we're back from, and I have, that probably was no time for listeners, so we're back now though. It was a little bit of time for us, had to give a cat a pill, so. 
I made a shake. You got a drink. I think we're all good to go. I think so. So the topic that I wanted to talk about was Asian horror films. Uh, before going into this, I wanted to say that uh, you know we have our own kind of uh, American cultural context that we bring to this topic, right? Um, my, my wife Holly and BJ and his wife uh, have all lived in Japan uh, for some time, and I've only visited, but they certainly know and get a lot more of that cultural context than I do. Uh, one of the interesting things, though, is uh, one of the things I really like about Japanese film and I've liked about anime and manga and, and all these different uh, uh, Japanese and Chinese novels is that they're kind of a window into looking at culture. And one of the things I find fascinating with them is that they have their own their own tropes and their own themes that, that are, aren't quite as familiar to us. I think it's one of the things that's really interesting about them. Uh, they have a lot of cultural references that we might not be familiar with, but but I, I really enjoy them. So, But I want to say, of course, we're looking at it from our own perspective. So please keep that in mind, and I apologize in advance for my pronunciation, which I know is not that great. Um, moving into this, I was going to mention a couple of books that I looked at about this subject, if, if you're curious about it. Uh, Introduction to Japanese Horror Films by Colette Bailmain, which is a 2008 uh, kind of academic novel. Uh, looks at a historic, historical cultural analysis of it. A uh, little dry, but but kind of interesting. Uh, traces the history of Japanese horror film over time, influences from World War II and uh, theatrical forms like Kabuki and No. And another one is Asian Horror by Andy Richards, a 2010 book that's a bit more accessible. It also looks at the history a little bit, but it's it's more uh, popular type book. And it, it has a list and reviews of, of, of different movies that are that are kind of must see movies. Uh, so before going into this any more, BJ, did you want to say anything? Have anything any any favorites that you wanted to mention right off? Um, nothing off the top of my head. I mean, of course, there's just stuff that we see that comes from Japan that you know maybe is not immediately knowledgeable to everyone uh, as coming from Japan, such as The Grudge and The Ring. Um, but stuff like that is very indicative of the, uh, the Japanese cultural style of horror. Right, and I'm going to mention that I, I'll talk a tiny bit about maybe the American things, but I'm mostly going to talk about the original Japanese. Yeah. In, in almost every case, I like the original Japanese movie somewhat better than the new one, although the new ones do have, have their, their moments, definitely, but I, I like the Japanese. I tend to like the Japanese ones a bit more. Um, so a couple of tropes that I wanted to mention are just kind of themes. Japanese horror movies are often a lot more pessimistic and fatalistic. It is oh, not, yeah. yeah, it is, uh, it is not uncommon for the bad guys to win, for everyone to die, for the world to be destroyed. That, those are all really common things in Japanese cinema, even in, in general, but definitely the case with horror. Uh, bad things happen, and sometimes there's not a really a good reason, and sometimes it's completely unfair, and that's just kind of the way it is. And that's a great point to bring up right off the bat because I think for our style, for American style uh, cinema, we go against that because we like the good guy to win. We like you know you know people you know the in in the teen horror films, tons of people die, but always there's one. Um, protagonist, right? Within the classic story archetypes, right? There's a protagonist in which you root behind, and it's the protagonist that will live at the end. Um, and and then whoever, be it Jason Voorhees or Mike Myers or Freddy or whoever, they usually die, only to be reimagined and and you know return for part seven or whatever. Exactly. Um, and so they also have the the, the Japanese horror. A lot of Japanese stuff is based in in the way that the culture goes. And something I want to mention right off is that um, there's a – well, let me – the best way to, 
to understand Japanese. I'm going to quote uh, Dave Barry in Dave Barry Does Japan. The best way to learn Japanese is to be born as a Japanese baby in Japan, raised by a Japanese family. Um, but which was which is how to learn Japanese thing. But there's a lot of, of um, a, a survey I read said that 90% of the Japanese were Shinto, 90% of the Japanese were Buddhist. And there was a certain amount of percentage Christian, whatever. But all these religions and all these mythologies have their place in Japanese uh, horror as well, and and in some of the traditions we see. So um, another couple, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit when we talk about, especially the Ring. But um, there are certain other systems that happen in Japan. There's there's a great uh, there's a tradition of obligation between individuals and between individuals and communities and groups. So an obligation is a very important concept. Uh, one of the things that Holly reminded me of was like a uh, giri choco, which is on Valentine's day. The, sometimes they have to give people obligation chocolates because, yes. you know, they have to. And so that's, that's, that's uh, the, but it's that concept of giri. Um, there's also um, in Buddhism, you have the, reincarnation kind of thing that you see come up in, in Japanese stories. Um, you In Shinto, you have the ancestor worship and the spirit world kind of aspect of it where, where things, different things have spirits. Uh, there, there's uh, and, and when you die, you become an ancestor and that also goes back into it. Uh, and, and there's these kinds of things which, which kind of inform uh, some of these, some of the things we're going to be talking about today. I think the other thing you need to cover from like a um, a cultural standpoint is like when you start getting into this stuff, you're going to start asking like, why does all of this stuff take place at schools, right? Why is the overwhelming majority – and I don't know all the examples, but I'm willing to bet that a lot of the examples you, you're going to bring up are going to be school-related in some form or fashion, right? I've got some. And and I think part of the, the reason for that is is because you know the schools are, are a major – um, sort of community hub within Japan. Students spend, you know, the majority of their day there. It's not just, you know, we go to school and then we leave. You know, students join clubs and they, you know, even when school's over, you know, they spend a majority of their time at the clubs, right? So it, it's it's a very, it's a much bigger factor in their lives than it is, say, over here. And right, and there's a certain amount of um, not sticking out. I think there was there's a there was a Japanese saying that's something like the the nail that sticks out is going to get pounded down or something like that is what Holly had mentioned. Yeah, when I was a teacher, one of the if a student was behaving incorrectly or something like that, my my favorite form of punishment just to get them to stop was to take their chair away, so they'd have to stand up, and they hated that because. Standing up, you're immediately, um, you know, you stick out from the crowd. You're not, nor, you know, you no longer blend in. Um, that was my easiest way to get a student to calm down, and they would beg for their chair back, you know, say that they'd be fine, you know, they'd be, they'd be good from that point on. You're absolutely correct. They want to blend in. They want to just blend with the crowd. So, um, so all that informs kind of, kind of how, how some of these things that happen. Like a lot of these movies, the themes are going to be much like in the U.S. The themes are about the individual versus society, or the individual versus the family. But they take on kind of a different resonance in these Japanese films. Um, some of the earlier tropes go back. Uh, we we have one of the earliest forms of literature that we have is the 11th century tale of Genji, uh, from from Japan. And one of the characters in that is the the jealous lady Rokujo, who is supposed to be a prototype of what's, what's called Yurei, which is the, the female ghost that we see a lot in a lot of Japanese cinema. Uh, in order to be Yurei, often people either die violently through suicide 
Legends, which is what we see in The Grudge, or if you're, you know the burial rites aren't adequate, stuff like that. Um, and this is a trope. You will recognize this trope. Usually this ghost is a female. Usually this person is wearing a white outfit of some sort because that's the way that women were buried in white Shinto burial kimonos that hangs limply. Usually they have long black hair, and that's because um, – Traditionally, their hair is let down for burial, even if it's usually up. Their hair is always down when they're buried. And also, this has become a trope, and I'm not sure why exactly, but the single eye peeking through the hair, that that is something that you see in a lot of of these kind of female ghost depictions. Oh, that's all over the place, man. Yeah. Yeah. So – Often, especially the more vengeful ghost, they will haunt or kill or do something bad to the person who wronged them, but they don't limit it to the person who wronged them. They'll go beyond that. Right. Their their violence, their ghost, their haunting will go far beyond that, and we see that a lot in, again, the Grudge series, in The Ring. Those are things that happen. Like You don't just haunt the people responsible for it, the person who killed you, the person who beat you, the person who was responsible for your death. No. Everybody, everybody pays. So this kind of angry, angry, vengeful female ghost is a, a really common kind of thing. Okay. So small technical problems. I apologize, everyone. You know, we um, sometimes I get asked how we do the podcast. We Skype it. Um, and so I just call Carlos on Skype and we uh, record. It's much cheaper than actually getting real recording equipment. Um, we do kind of lose the face to face interaction, but Carlos and I have kind of developed a rhythm, but, uh, technology, technology gets in the way. So, um, I apologize for that. Um, and Carlos, you were saying about the, uh, the anime horror. Well, I, well, I was saying actually it was a video game. I wondered if you ever played the first person shooter fear. Yes, yes, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Right, First Encounter Assault Recon had the character of Alma, who was super creepy, but this creepy psychic ghost girl that kept on popping out out of the corner of your eye and giggling wildly. But yeah, exactly, that is that is completely taken from the, this kind of Japanese theme. So you're saying that this is not just something – this is something that's um, permeating uh, American culture now, but sure. not just like you know anime and stuff like that. It's down to video games and movies. Definitely. Most – very, very most definitely. Um, water plays a big role in a lot of these films. Water is often seen as a gateway to the underworld. Uh, you have floating lanterns during Oban to honor ancestral spirits. Uh, there's a river where uh, – People are ferried across, you know, kind of analogous, really, to the River Styx uh, in 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 uh, Greek mythology. They have they have their own uh, thing. Uh, you, I assume Jizo statues. You saw Jizo statues all over the place, right? Oh yeah, all, everywhere. So Jizo is a bodhisattva uh, from the Buddhist tradition, uh, who is one of the most uh, popular of the Japanese divinities. Uh, and he's this little round man off, often carrying a staff, um, and his statues, you find him all over the roadside and, and in graveyards. And he's the guardian of children, especially children who have died before their parents or died young, stillborn, miscarried. Um, and partly it is because in, in, a, in a Japanese mythological tradition, it said that the, the souls of children who die before their parents can't cross this river, which is the Sanzu River, on the way to the afterlife because they haven't had enough time to get good deeds yet and because the parents suffer because their children died. So one of the things that Jiso does is he saves them from having to build to, – to pile stone 
uh, and to build a bridge to cross the river, uh, he he hides them from demons that try to come and take all their stones, and and he lets them uh, he helps them to cross. So when you see those, and I know I saw this when I was tra- when I was traveling around, uh, you see the statues that there's a bunch of little little rocks or little children statues that have bibs. Or, and, and people leave pebbles and stones and rocks by the statues, and that's all kind of part of this, this mythology that it's supposed to help uh, the children cross over into the afterlife. Uh, this is a – and this is also this – is, this is a theme you see in movies and in anime uh, occasionally as well. Um, so water has this big thing. Wells have a thing. There's a, a really famous story uh, called The Tale of Okiku, which uh, a samurai killed his maid because she rejected him. And and he killed her and threw her in a well, and then her ghost came back to haunt him uh, from from the well. And of course, you see that in the ring. Um, and ghost stories, actually, just in general, go back a really long time in Japan. There's a tradition that uh, it's called uh, Hyaku Monogatari Kaidankai. Did you ever hear that, BJ? No, not off the top of my head. So it, if you watch anime, it's come out in a couple of things. Um, there's a show called Holic by Clamp, uh, but basically, it's this tradition where. People will gather around like one night with a hundred lit candles, and they have to ex- they, ex- they tell a ghost story and extinguish a candle at the time uh, at a time. And the the story goes at the end of extinguishing that after the hundred ghost stories, a real ghost will appear. And that's that's kind of a, a Japanese cultural thing. And you, like I said, you see it in Holic, you've seen it in some other shows, but that's where that comes from. And that that's date that dates back apparently to the Edo period, which was in the uh, 1600s to the uh, 1800s. But yeah, so ghost ghosts have a, a long thing in Japan. Um, so some of the things, other other themes you see are relationships with technology, um, and, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the movies a little bit. Uh, so Japanese movie, and I've talked a lot about Japan because I've seen more Japanese movies than other movies, but uh, I'll talk about some other ones as well. So the first one probably that everyone everyone knows is going to be The Ring, uh, which was a 1998 Japanese horror film directed by Hideo Nakara. Uh, Ringu, I think. It, actually, when I first saw it, they called it the Ring, but then they eventually called the Japanese version Ringu, which I thought was odd, but uh, because that, I guess that's literally how it's translated, and they didn't want to co- conf- uh, confuse with the uh, American version, the remake of that. Um, and that one was was one of the very first uh, one of the very first movies that had widespread like international uh, acceptance. Uh, considered the most frightening horror film in Japan, according to many surveys. Uh, it did really well internationally, a highest grossing horror film, uh, Japanese horror film of all time. And uh, I assume most people have seen it. I, I, I'm certain you've seen it, BJ. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. And so the concept of the, of the, of the, of the ring is that these people watch a videotape. The videotape is cursed. Whoever watches it gets a phone call and says that they're going to be killed seven days after watching it. And this movie has a lot of those themes that we talked about. It's got the vengeful ghost spirit. It's got this kind of technology thing with the telephone, or it's not the telephone, the, yeah, the telephone call and the videotape. And, uh, and, but yeah, it is a really creepy movie. And that was definitely the first one that I saw that had that kind of female ghost, uh, Sadako in the in the ring in in this version um, who, who came out there. It's actually based on a novel by Koji Suzuki, um, and it's a series of novels. He's referred to as the uh, Stephen King of Japan. Often, the novels are a little bit different than the movies. Um, in in plot points, they're quite similar, but uh, they tend to be a little bit more. Especially as they go as they go on, they get a lot more different and they get more sciency. So you know you had this kind of psychic psychic uh, theme in the ring, 
but and that gets and this kind of psychic virus kind of thing gets more and more a uh, part of the concept as the novel goes on, which the movies diverge from. Have you seen Have you seen uh, any of the other Ring movies? Well, I saw the original from Japan, and I saw the two over here. They kind of got a little bit weird with the you can sh- uh, spoilers, spoilers. You can shed the curse if you can get somebody else to watch the videotape. Um, and so they kind of went down a weird thing. I think at some point, didn't they like broadcast it on TV and have a whole bunch of people watch it? I th- I that was implied. I think was that an American one or was that in a? I think it was that in did both. Happen. Yeah, it did happen. Yeah, I think I I know that happened in one of the. And I'm not sure if it was Korean or the Japanese version, but yes, they, that did happen at some point. And at that point, I'm just like, oh, so we're, we've gone into this weird, like, biblical, we're going to kill everyone on the planet or something. So, Yeah, but yeah, it, I, I really, of all of them, I've seen the, the Japanese versions, the American versions, the Korean version. I think the first Japanese version of The Ring is probably the first, the one to watch. Um, one thing I think is a trend in the American remakes in particular is that they explain a lot more in the American remakes. Uh, Whereas the Japanese are are apparently the Japanese versions, and I'm not sure if this is uh, what this is exactly, but they are, I'm sure there are certain cultural cues that we're missing. And also they just seem to be more comfortable with ambiguity than we tend to be because they, the first time I watched a lot of these movies, I had no I, they're, they're, and I'll talk about one in a bit that I'm not entirely sure what just happened or what's going on or what this means. Um, but, uh, there's, and so the, the Japanese versions of the ring are much more ambiguous about, uh, certain things that are spelled out in the American versions. And you know what? I prefer that to be quite honest. I do too, honestly. <laughs> because the human imagination will come up with worse things than what you can ever actually put on paper. I think that's one of the reasons we've never seen a true attempt at a Cthulhu movie. Because Cthulhu is all supposed to be the horror that you imagine in your mind, right? They, they, I mean, besides like describing what Cthulhu looks like, you know, there's a lot of kind of, you know, fuck with your mind stuff going on in there. And, uh, that's why it won't translate well into to either a TV series or into to a big picture because it's not about all the visuals except for that one shot that they talk about all the time when Cthulhu rises from the water. And even then, it's pretty ambiguous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those old-style H.P. Lovecraft uh, novels have a lot in common with Japanese-style horror, right, about what you imagine being worse than what's on paper. Right, right. and it, it tends to be a bit more quieter. You don't, I mean, you do have the Japanese slasher gore films, but not not in the same way that we do in the U.S. It's a quieter buildup, there's more ambiguity, and the good guys don't always win. Oh, you got to be, also, you got to be willing to endure pacing, right? Because yes. I, I think in American movies, we tend to go a little bit faster. We want to hit those beats real fast, hit the, you know, act one, act two, act three, get everything wrapped up and done within an hour and a half to two hours. They will, they, they won't follow the normal three act structure. Um, so you might be a little bit put off by that at first. Um, and they're also going to take very long beats in certain areas. They're going to purposely take time, people sitting in, in eerie quiet or what have you for an extended period of time. And you're expecting, a cat sound or something to crash out and it's not going to happen. They really want to draw it out, right? You know, and play with the, the, uh, I'm not going to say that they're playing with the stereotypes because I don't think it's a stereotype over there for them. It's just a different style of storytelling. Exactly. So the ring, let's see, had two sequels in Japan, the, the movies, uh, Rasen and ring two. 
uh, and the prequel called Ring Zero Birthday. Uh, used to be hard to find. I'm not sure if it still is anymore. Uh, there's a Korean remake that was released in the U.S. as The Ring Virus. And apparently, I did not know this, but there was a video game called The Ring Terror's Realm that was for the Dreamcast. I missed that entirely, uh, probably because I didn't have a Dreamcast. Um, 2002, we had The Ring and The Ring 2. Um which had Samara take place of take the place of Sadako, and I didn't, and I just didn't find her quite as as uh, scary as, as Sadako, honestly. Yeah. And in Japan, this past year, they released the Ring 3D. Uh, go ahead. Oh, nothing, nothing. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, uh, it, it it came out just a couple months ago, actually, and uh, apparently was not very good according to reviews so far. But we'll see. They were supposed to be making a 3D movie and a new Ring 3D for the U.S. as well. So I'm not entirely sure what's happening there. It is good to see that that even though there are a lot of differences between American horror and Japanese horror, they still all you know spiral down in the same sequel hell that uh, most horror movies tend to, to end up in. Yes, that is definitely true. Yeah. So it's it's you know there's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, in order to see the really good stuff, you're gonna have to endure some um, uh, subtitles, right? Yes. So number one, if you don't like subtitles, you you probably don't like foreign movies in general. Then so just <laughs> go ahead and stay away. But if you if you're okay with subtitles and you like horror and you want something a little bit different out there, start digging into the Japanese horrors because you're gonna find some gems in there. Right. Uh, next one I wanted to mention was Juon, which is also called The, the Grudge, um, directed by Takashi Shimizu. Uh, I, I really enjoyed The Grudge. Um, and this one was is one of the ones, again, it's got the scary female ghost. It's got a scary little boy who screams like a cat. Uh, and this is a one where uh, at least some readings of it have said that it's partly a commentary on domestic violence, which apparently uh, within – when the movie came out, uh, reports of domestic violence were heavily on the rise in Japan at the time, uh, which I actually hadn't known that until until fairly recently when I was reading up about the history of the movies. But yeah, and and it is this is one of the ones that is ambi- There's a lot of ambiguity in it. Ambiguity in it. You're not really sure what happens because of the way they do the sequencing um, or, or why things are happening, and you kind of get a sense of it uh, towards. Uh, as it gets to the end really enjoyed this movie this was made into a u.s remake with sarah michelle geller uh which which uh was also kind of interesting um holly's uh, i don't want to use the word favorite uh holly has a scene there did you see the uh there's a scene in it where i think it's sarah michelle geller is in an elevator in a ho- in either the hospital i think it's in the hospital and every floor she passes you see uh you see the ghost on the outside I think I vaguely remember this, yeah. So, at, Holly works at uh, at at a in an old in in architecture. She works at an architecture library, and which happens to also be a famous building, which is like on an architectural registry, so they can't do alterations to it and that kind of stuff. And they have a really old style elevator there, where you have to like close the gates and then close or close the door and then and then it goes up and down and it has that window like that kind of like little window going up and she's there of course she closes so she's there at night in the dark by herself and she'll have to go up and down the elevator it is the creepiest thing ever completely reminds her of that movie it is so awesome i've always tempted to scare her and then she would probably kill me if i did that so you know what i found really odd about the remake with sarah michelle geller what's that they said it in japan I thought that was yeah, that was that was odd. I agree. 
So so she plays the girlfriend of some guy who's doing um, work over there. So it's in Japan. It's got Japanese characters. Some of it's in Japanese. Uh, and, I mean, I, I thought when they were going to remake it, they were going to, you know, tweak it and set it in, in, in an American, you know, uh, suburban area or something like that. But, no, they, they just, you know. And it was – you know what it was? It was less of a remake and more of a sequel because they had, like, some of the same murders and stuff like that from the and original this, in there. And they had the same actors playing the ghosts also. Yeah, so I, I don't even know if you can say it's a remake. I think it's just a, a sequel off of the the, uh, the grudge. Almost. I mean, they, they redid some of the scenes and added a few new ones. It was really, yeah, it was kind of odd. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is fun. I think I think Juwan definitely is one that, that you definitely should watch. And I honestly would also watch the U.S. version. Um, I like them both quite a bit. Yeah, I completely agree. So next uh, next movie I wanted to mention was one that I saw today. Ooh, what would you see today? So today, uh, based on the recommendation of the book, I saw a movie called Kaido, uh, or in the U.S. it is called Pulse, and it was also remade as a movie called Pulse. Uh, the remake starred uh, Kristen Bell, I believe. I never saw it. I actually never heard of it, I don't believe, but uh, I did get to watch the original. It is a, a 2001 film about uh, ghosts invading us because of – from the internet, sort of. Uh, and it, it's supposed to be a kind of a commentary on alienation and loneliness and kind of kind of the breaking of society uh, and stuff like that. But it, it is it has its creepy moments. But I really didn't think of it as scary so much as odd. <laughs> and just, they're, they're, just trying to make like a social message or something like that. Well, yes, and there's some weird exposition as a result of that. I think. Um, or some, and definitely some weird dialogue as a result of that. And there were a couple of moments that were, that were, that were creepy. Definitely. But the movie itself was strange. I, I liked it. I actually did like it. And I, I'm gonna watch it again with Holly, I think, so I can get her take on it. Uh, and I think she might enjoy it. But it, it's, it's, it's more psychological than anything else. Even though it has, uh, you know, very straightforward, there are ghosts. There are ghosts coming. There, you know, there are ghosts that are basically trying to to come to the world of the living for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah, it was it's a fun movie. Awesome, awesome, sounds awesome. And it is on Netflix, so you know, if you've got Netflix, check it out. Um, it's a couple of honorable mentions. Dark Water. Did you see uh, either the U.S. or the Japanese version? I've seen both. Yeah, what do you think? I thought they were very good. Yeah, I liked I liked Dark Water quite a bit. It's been a long time since I've seen it, which is why I didn't want to talk too much about it today. Whereas I've seen the other ones more recently. Uh, but yeah, I enjoyed Dark Water. Uh, I like the Japanese version slightly better than the U.S. version, and one of them is on Netflix. Although I don't know which one. I'm willing to bet it's the American version. But I think I think that's true. I, I want to say this. I think the American version did probably one of the best jobs of reinterpreting the original for an American audience, right? We, we've talked about how some of them, like, you know, with The Grudge are um, sort of a sequelist and, you know, it's set in Japan. I think in Darkwater they really tried to do the Japanese version but tweak it in such a way for American audiences yet still be true to the original material. That can be tough. That transition can be tough. Yes, and I and I agree. I think I think it was a very good translation of, of the Japanese original. Yeah. Um, the ones I'm going to mention a couple of Korean films uh, that I've seen uh, relatively recently, actually Korean horror movies. One of them is a series uh, that starts with one called Whispering Corridors, which was again a 1998 came out the same year as The Ring, a 1998 film, uh, South Korean film about a girl's high school, um, and this one apparently has a pretty significant. Um, 
historical basis also because it was one of the movies that came out after the military dictatorship ended. And this one particularly, it, it did have some social commentary to it related to uh, authoritarianism and the South Korean education system. Um, and it, it, it has four direct sequels, uh, Memento Mori, Wishing Stairs, Voice, and a Blood Pledge slash Suicide Pact. Um, none of them, they're not like, they're direct sequels in one sense, but they're not actually using the same characters. It's just more of the same theme explored in different ways. But yeah, it is a, it is a haunted girl's school. Um, and it actually, it's really interesting. And basically this, uh, something weird is happening with a, a student in the school. There's maybe a ghost in the class, something, and they're trying to figure out why a ghost would be haunting. But anyway, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoy Whispering Corridor. The first four used to be on Netflix last year, but for some reason they're not anymore. And I don't know if that's because Netflix service, they keep on losing contracts, and I assume it has something to do with that. But um, this one you can pick up from Amazon and some other places. Um, I'm going to see if anybody's streaming it uh, in, in any of the other services at some point. But yeah, Whispering Corridors is the first one. Definitely worth watching, and I think the, the series is fun as well. Uh, I, I, I haven't seen the fourth one yet, I believe, but... Uh, uh, the rest of them are all, all excellent. The other one I, I wanted to mention was A Tale of Two Sisters. Have you had a chance to watch that? No, I have not seen that. You should totally check that out. Also, this one is definitely on Netflix. It's a 2003 horror film, and it is it is so much fun. So basically, there's a... a at, at Towards the beginning of the movie, these two sisters uh, are coming to a house, and strange things are happening in the house. And and one of the sisters seems like she might be being abused by the stepmother, but you can't really exactly say what's going on. Um, and and the other sister suspects. Uh, and when when you start out, you know that one of the sisters is is not there. Like it's it starts out in kind of like a flashback. Or, uh, sorry, it starts out in the present, and then it it kind of continues from a flashback, like what happened before. And in the present, you you notice that immediately that one of the sisters isn't around. And so you, you try to figure out what, uh, what, what happened to the other sister in the course of this, in the course of this movie. Excellent film. Psychological horror movie. Ghost story. It's great. Definitely check it out. We got a lot of great examples there. I think people who are listening to this will have a ton of stuff that they can watch. Right. And I'm just going to mention, I've heard The Host is a good movie. Haven't seen it. Heard it's fun. I haven't heard of that one either. Yeah, that one is also – I've heard it's, it's, it's really good. It is on Netflix as well. That is on my list of things to watch next. That is pretty much all we have time for because we've actually gone pretty long today as well. We have, and we've had some disconnects. I'm going to have a fun job editing this. So for yeah. everyone listening, I apologize if it seems a little jerky. I'm going to have to do some magical editing to make sense of it, but we've had some technical problems this time. Yeah, and if any of you uh, have any recommendations for any kind of horror movies, you know, Asian horror, not Asian horror, please let us know because I, I love horror movies. And you can reach us at uh, COTB1 uh, on Twitter. You can find us at comingoutofthebasement.com. We're also a podcast at uh, comingoutofthebasement.com. And uh, any other, we have, uh, do we have any other social media for them to get a hold of us with? Um, you know, that's an excellent. I don't think so. I think those are I the think, main ways now. Yeah, we. I know that like everyone's like, oh, you gotta have like a Facebook page and stuff. I think you know, we, you know, I don't think we need to do that. So, yeah, I, I'll I read the network interface Facebook page every now and then. So, there's no mention of us on that though. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there used to be. I think it's just been a while since we come out with a podcast. So, probably, yeah. probably. Yeah. So. yeah, but thank you all very much for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next time.
Network interface disabled. Goodbye.